Remember, uh, several weeks ago, we went through book 1, 2, and 3 of Back to the Bible. Back to the Bible. And there's just a number of people in our society who still have a great respect for the Word of God. And so these are designed for uh, folks uh, with that sort of stance and attitude, and you can get right to the, the issues of salvation in book 1, 2, and 3 of Back to the Bible. But now... We have created a new series for those who are not ready to open up the Bible. They, they have doubts concerning God, doubts concerning the Scriptures, and doubts concerning uh, Jesus Christ. And so these three booklets that we're going through right now are designed to help, um, help with those doubts. Okay? And so let's, let's remember uh, that ideal as well. And so... We want to get people to the Bible. Thank you, Mark. So that we can study the Bible uh, with them. How important is our mission? Wednesday evening we were looking at number 16 and the rebellion of Korah and of Dathan and Abiram. You remember God made the earth split open as a judgment and punishment upon the ones that were rebelling against God back in those days in the wilderness. And if that weren't enough, the next day after he gave this punishment uh, to those specific ones and their families, the very next day the people of God, the rest of the congregation of the people of God grumbled, grumbled, against Moses once again. And God sent a plague among those people. And over 14,000 died. But Moses and Aaron quickly, because of the love they had for the people, they quickly, Moses said, get a censer, Aaron, go put some incense on it, go to the altar and make atonement for the people. Which they did. And they were able to stay the plague, but the plague went so far that over 14,000 still died from it. But looking in Numbers chapter 16 and 48, notice a little statement there, and it relates to our mission. Numbers 16 and 48, it said that Moses and Aaron stood between the living and the dead. What they were doing and running and getting that censer and get the incense on it and go to the altar to make atonement for the people, they were actually standing in between death and living for many in the congregation. And because they went and did that, they were able to save the lives of of thousands uh, because of their dedication and their love for people. That's what we're doing, except even on a grander scale. When we have the gospel, which we have it, and we are sharing it, we are standing in between, really, heaven and hell for people. We are standing in between life and death, spiritually speaking. Will people out here, out here be able to enjoy a relationship with Jesus and have spiritual life and then eventually eternal life in heaven? That depends on us. If we do not seek to share, then they will certainly continue in their spiritual death, and then they, as a consequence of that, will have their eternal death. 
And so literally, with our possession of the gospel, that's what we've always said, to whom much is given, Luke 12 and 48, much shall be required. This is the requirement. We must stand between the living and the dead. And that's what we're doing. That's why doing things that we're doing, though it's a little different here on Sunday night, it has an ultimate purpose. It has, it has a very important ideal behind it. We may not be going through this in, in a perfect way. This is new to us. But nonetheless, the ideal behind it is, is hugely important. Okay. Now, we're going to be starting in our booklet on page number 8. I think we got to page 7. Last week's lessons were basically focused on God and, and how there must be a, an ultimate higher source, higher power, and that is God himself, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible. And you see that because the universe is here. You see that because of the design in the universe. Okay. And so we talked about that a little bit last week. Before we get to page 8, which will both basically focus on man's behavior and why we must go to God because of man's behavior, I want to just give a couple of thoughts. <clears throat> Let's start like this. Animals are fascinating. We're so thankful to God. We read in, in Genesis 1 beginning in verse 20, on the fifth and sixth days of creation, God created animals in the air. God created animals in the sea. God created land animals. And it is for our benefit, both for eating and for enjoyment and for our work. We're so fascinated with animals. Just think about watching birds. Every once in a while you just watch birds and how they move. It's incredible, isn't it? at the speed, and then they can just pull up and land on a, on a branch. It's just amazing what they can do and how they can just kind of hover in the air as, they, as maybe they feed off of, of something. It's, it's just really amazing the creatures that God has uh, created. Uh, I was reading a little bit about elephants. I've always been amazed. At, never been around an actual elephant, uh, but um, I see them on TV and they're amazing creatures to me. To be able to tame an elephant and, and to work uh, with him. They say that, that elephants will uh, protect uh, their own calves and they'll, they'll create a circle around their calves if they feel like there is danger nearby. They also uh, have their own clans. So the whole clan will just stand around the, the pups or, or, the, or the baby calves until the danger goes away. Uh, they also say that the elephants will uh, sometimes go to another clan of elephants and they will kidnap some of their calves just to show their dominance from one clan uh, to another. It's just amazing just to think about all the different creatures that God has uh, put upon this earth uh, for our amazement, I think. And of course, it helps us in our work and helps us in our recreation for me personally, I've just, my life is, uh, and I know my last name says it, but my life has just been the dogs. You know, I love dogs. I grew up with a bunch of dogs. I grew up with uh, one particular dog named Sally. She probably had 15 different sets of puppies. Okay. Uh, it was Walker County, and people let their dogs roam, and so you know how that happens. 
15. And what Sally was amazing. She would go off into the woods to have her puppies, and then she would come and tell us that she had her puppies. And it was amazing to watch her. Of course, we could tell she had her puppies. She's not near as big as she was. But we could, it was amazing to watch her body language. She would come to the house, and she would begin to, to growl, and then she would begin to wag her tail wildly, and then she would begin to run toward the woods, and then she would turn around and come back. Then she would run toward the woods and she'd turn around and come back, telling us, hey, you need to follow me. The puppies are out here. We've got to get them back to the house. It's, and you have experiences with, with horses and a bunch of different animals and cattle that you could tell a lot of stories yourself. But here's what we know. Here's what we know. Animals are not made in the image of God. Animals cannot reason. They cannot think. They cannot teach, they cannot worship, they cannot pray, they cannot examine themselves. Okay? We will never hear a dog uh, contemplate and say, maybe I should not have barked as loud last night. Okay? I, I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't, have bit, I shouldn't have just bitten the evil kid and not the good kid. You never hear dogs uh, contemplate. No animal is going to contemplate. It's obvious to us, but it's something that we must point out anyway. Now, on the other hand, at a very much higher level, God created human beings. God created man and woman in His image. Okay. And we're not going to take the time to do it, but think about the difference between animals and humans are, are several. But one is the image of God. And two is we have a soul. Number three, we have a conscience. I'm, I'm going to drill in on that before we get to our booklets. We have a conscience. Now, a conscience is something we all have. It's like everybody has a personal thermostat. And if you have a thermostat in your house and you set that thermostat on a particular level according to the environment you want to create in your house. So within us, God has put a behavior thermostat uh, inside all of us. Okay. It differs, it differs, but there is a behavior thermostat within us. And it gives us a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Okay. Now, do you ever disagree on where the thermostat should be set in your house? Okay. All right. Why is it that husbands and wives, probably one of them is hot nature and one of them is cold nature? Okay. A lot of times it happens that way. So there's there's constant movement of the thermostat. Okay. And so eventually, you just have to take control of, of your house. But everybody may disagree in the house. Everybody may disagree on where the thermostat should be set. But everybody agrees there needs to be air in the house. There needs to be heat in the winter, and there needs to be air in the, in the winter. So it is, within human beings, we don't all agree... You can turn on the news and see this. We don't all agree what is right and wrong, but everybody agrees there is right and wrong because that's the way God made us. Now, our, our conscience involves two primary things. Okay? It involves what, what we call an oughtness. You ought to do this and you ought not to do that. It involves an oughtness, and then it involves guilt. It involves guilt. Let's look at a couple of passages that explains both of those. 
Look at James 3, verses 9 and 10 for the altness. God has put an altness in us because we're made in His image. In James 3, uh, the writer is warning us about the misuse of our tongues. And he said one way you can misuse your tongue and be ungodly in your tongue is that you will, with the tongue, you will bless God, but also with the tongue you will curse men who are made after the similitude of God, who are made in the very image of God. And this is James' argument. You cannot bless God with your tongue and then turn around and curse men, be evil with your tongue toward men, because they are made in the image of God. And then he goes on to say, therewith with the same tongue you're blessing God and cursing men. He says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Notice that oughtness there. And the oughtness is based on the fact that we're all made in the image of God. Now, numerous thousands of examples could follow that, but that's at least one example of the conscience that is uh, within us. And think about guilt. Think about guilt. Jesus uses this in John 8. You remember when, when the woman was brought into the temple, Jesus is teaching early in the morning, and so some of the Pharisees trying to test Jesus and tempt him, they brought in a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, and they said, look, Moses' law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say, oh, Lord? What do you say? What did Jesus do? Well, he stooped down for a minute or two, and he took his finger and wrote on the ground. And as he did that, they just continued to ask him, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Finally, Jesus rose up and he said, what did he say? There you go. Those of you who are without sin, let him cast the first stone. And when he said this, they began one by one to file out from the oldest person of the accusers to the youngest. Because of guilt. Guilt. Conscience is very, very important. And conscience is important in regard to working our way toward God. Every person walking around on this earth, even an atheist, can be driven to a point of defending some standard of right and wrong. This this is huge. Every person walking around on this earth, even an unbeliever, can be driven to a point where they're going to defend some standard of right versus wrong. It's inherent in all of us. Okay, And so... As we are speaking to people who have considerable doubt against God and the Bible, this is an excellent conversation piece because you can do it gently. You can do it with a lot of patience. You don't have to be sharp. You don't have to be rough. You shouldn't be that way anyway. But you can just talk about behavior, especially behavior we all agree that's wrong, and then just gently ask them, you know, why is that wrong? Why why do you think that's wrong? Is it wrong because you say it's wrong? Is it wrong because your dad says it wrong? Says it wrong. Is, is it wrong because the community says it's wrong? And just keep talking about that, asking those questions, so we can drive them back to an ultimate source of standard of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis, by the way, I'm going to give you some supplemental material here. I'm not going to go over all of it. But here's what C.S. Lewis said. This is great. He says, conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, 
thus pointing us to a supernatural lawgiver. You see, that conscience within us is really a code or a law. We're all born with it. Okay? We, all have, we all have a sense of right or wrong. Where there is a law, there must be a lawmaker, a lawgiver. And so listen to this once again with C.S. Lewis. He says, Conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, world, thus pointing us to a supernatural law giver. I'll give you, uh, if you want this, some supplemental material regarding uh, the conscience. But that, that brings us to our, our booklet uh, this evening because these questions that we read will be uh, dealing with uh, the moral law uh, that is within all of us and that does not exist uh, within animals. So let's read over, uh, beginning in page number 8. And if you have any questions, Ken Nelson will be glad to answer those for you. So as you have uh, any thoughts, and we'll have him come up here and explain it uh, to you. Uh, Where do we get morality? Where do we get our morality? So let's read through these uh, questions. You come up with your own set of questions, but what we're trying to do here is you, you're thinking in the shoes of someone who has a lot of doubts. So what are some questions that you can ask that will try to lead them to the ultimate source of right and wrong? So here, here's a question. If, if a national law required you to exterminate all blonde-haired people, would that law be moral or immoral? What's that? Immoral. If the, if the law of the majority required you to exterminate all blonde-haired people, would that law be moral or immoral? Be immoral. If an international law required you to exterminate all blonde-haired people, would that law be moral or immoral? Be immoral. Okay. Is there a law? Okay. Now, when you're talking with someone, say you're going through this booklet, okay, you don't necessarily have to answer all these questions. This is just to make folks think. Okay. So notice this next question. Is there a law that would protect all blonde-haired people from the majority, national and international law? We know there is. But we want to lead people to understand and believe that for themselves. What is that law? We know that law is from the nature of God and it is found in the Bible. Okay. But... As you're asking these questions or going over these questions and someone is, does not believe, then you might just kind of say, well, let's just think about that and, and keep asking some questions. Okay? That leads us to page number nine. Did moral law require the Nazis to disobey the German law uh, to extermin- exterminate the Jews? In other words, there were some Nazis who did not want to do the bidding of the German government, the German law. And so what law would make them hesitate to do that. Okay? So did moral law require the Nazis to disobey the German law to exterminate Jews? Yes. If they disobeyed that German law to not, ex- to not exterminate the Jews or to exterminate the Jews, then they would be obeying some sort of moral law. Does moral law require a moral law giver, someone to create it? Okay? Yes, that's common sense. Common sense. Where there's a law, someone, somewhere, somehow uh, created it. All right, next question. Wouldn't it be dangerous for moral law to come from one person like Hitler? Okay, we all agree that it would be. 
It'd be dangerous for our moral law to come from one person like Hitler. Then wouldn't it be dangerous for moral law to come from one nation like Nazi Germany back in those days? Of course, that would be very dangerous for the whole world to operate off of their system of rules. And then wouldn't it be dangerous for moral law to come from an international body like the United Nations? Absolutely it would. Absolutely it would be very dangerous. When Nazi leaders were convicted of violating moral law and sentenced to death, did they violate German law? No, they were following German law. Yes. Well, no. No, no, no. When, when Nazi leaders were convicted of violating moral law and sentenced to death, did they? No, they did not violate German law. But what they violated was a moral law. A moral law. That is known to all human beings. That's what this is leading up to. Okay, the bottom question there. When Nazi leaders were convicted of violating moral law and sentenced to death, did they violate international law? Okay, at that time there was no international law. So they did not violate international law. All right, next page, top of page uh, 10. When Nazi leaders were convicted of violating moral law and sentenced to death, did they violate the U.S. law? Okay. No, because they weren't living under the U.S. laws. They were not subject to those laws. Okay. You'll see this is leading up. So then, by what law did the Nuremberg trials convict the Nazis? By what law did they use to convict many to death, sentence them to death, because of their terrible uh, destruction of the Jews? Well, notice that bottom note there. On July 27, 1946, Sir Hartley Shawcross, chief prosecutor of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, asserted the basis for human behavior. Notice what he said. Ultimately, the rights of men made as all men are made in the image of God are fundamental. Now, the reason he stated that is because we, he, he was the chief prosecutor. And he is saying, we are convicting these men not on any one country's law, but on a law that transcends all laws. And that is the fact that we're all made in the image of God. Note number two, in the Nuremberg Trials, 1946, Chief Justice Robert Jackson said, as an international military tribunal, it rises above the provincial and transient. Okay. In other words, these men, and I just wonder how many of this, these sort of judges are left in our world. Doesn't it make you just wonder? But these men had the conviction that there was an ultimate Law belonging to the one who created us in his image that we're all subject to. And it was based on that moral law that comes from the nature of God that these trials uh, took place. Summary questions on page 11. If God did not exist, would objective, universally accepted, unchanging moral values exist? What's the answer to that? If God did not exist, would uh, universal moral values exist? No. Do you believe objective moral values exist, universally accepted, unchanging today? Do you believe they exist? Therefore, would you agree that God could exist? And again, we are imagining that we are, we are talking with someone who has um, a, a lot of doubts. And then ask this question, does evil exist? What are, what are most people going to say when you ask that question? 
Most people say yes. And that's good when they say yes. Because then, as we said before, we begin to ask, well, what makes something evil? What do you think makes something evil? What is an example of evil? That would be a good follow-up question. Well, if evil exists, then what is an example of evil? And then what standard or law would you use to define evil? Does the existence of good require the existence of evil? How would you answer that? Yes. Yes. Because the ultimate good, of course, is God. And since God is ultimately good, then the no one is like God, therefore evil uh, must exist. What standard would you use to define goodness? Okay. It would have to come from the nature of God as revealed in Scripture. This is an example, Mark 10, verse 18. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, ultimately, and that is God. It's not that we can't be good, but we'll never be a perfectly good like God. And that's the reason why all goodness... And all moral law must come from him and his nature. Okay. And so, beginning on page uh, 12. Now, before we jump to this, let's remember uh, our reasoning is going to be uh, very sound on evil. And this can go with any subject. Suppose you're talking about marriage. Okay. And all the, uh, all the departures in marriage today. Well, you can easily get right into this sort of reasoning. Who who defines what marriage is? Does the community? Do you? Does the community? Does the governor? You know? Does Congress? Does the president? Who? Does the United Nations? World Health Organization? Who defines marriage? And so you can just lead folks to just, you know, it's amazing that, that folks really, unlike you and I, because we do this all the time with our scriptures, because scripture tells us, it, it forces us, it drives us to do this kind of reasoning. But you'd be amazed how many people don't do that kind of reasoning, and, and we just have to um, kind of start where they're at. All right. On page 12, do animals show us God? Is a tiger that escapes from a zoo and slays a helpless child taken to prison and given a trial? Well, of course not. Why is that? That's the question. Why is that? Is a human who murders a helpless child taken to prison and given a trial? Yes. Yes. Do animals have morality? No. No. Do humans have morality? Yes. If humans have morality and animals do not, from where does this morality uh, come from? And of course, we know it comes from God. We are reasoning with someone as we talk to them about the Lord. Our aim is to help them come to the same sort of faith that we have had uh, for years. Does an animal have a conscience? No. Does a human have a conscience? All right. That's why we went over some of that, some of those verses before we got started. Uh, does a lion feel remorse after killing its prey? That would be a no. Do most humans feel remorse after killing another human being? Yes. If a human being, if a human has a conscience and an animal does not, from where does that conscience come? 
If the conscience were the result of a purely random chemical process, could we trust it? No. And it couldn't even really exist. Random chemical processes cannot create uh, behavior, moral behavior. If a conscience were designed and created by a moral lawgiver, then could we uh, trust it? Now, that just makes more sense. That's what we're going for here. What is most reasonable from what we know? Okay, does our morality, our, our, the inherent conscience within us, does it make sense that that would come from, from the evolution of rocks and, and slime and eventually land us as human beings? Or does it make more sense that someone higher and greater and good, ultimately good, uh, brought us here? Romans 1, uh, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without uh, excuse. So that's as far as we'll go uh, this evening. I've been given uh, some advice, and I try to learn from it, uh, to try to get done sooner on Sunday evenings, but also not rush through these booklets. So the next section here is pain and suffering, and then the next section is punishment of God. Some of these uh, issues we're mentioning in this book, uh, such as pain, suffering, and punishment, uh, they are not obstacles to someone believing, but people believe they're obstacles, and so we need to be ready uh, to talk about that. Paul's going to lead us in our invitation song. For just a moment, let's go back and think about each of us have, has a conscience. And the idea that we don't always agree as a people, people in the world, what is right and wrong, what is wrong. We all have a sense of right and wrong. But exactly what is right and what is wrong, well, that's where Scripture comes in. Our conscience must be educated. And that's why God has given us the Bible. He's given us the New Testament for us uh, today. How do we get and maintain a good conscience? All right. and so let's answer that for the next minute or so as we think about our lives and our hearts before God. Okay. Good conscience comes from obeying the Lord. 1 Peter 3.21 The light figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer, or better, the appeal to God for a good conscience. That's what I'm doing when I come to God and submit to Him. I realize I'm in my sin. I realize I'm not comfortable uh, with my inner self, my conscience. My mind is bothering me. My heart is disturbed. How can I get forgiveness? Only through Jesus. As I come to Him, I'm appealing to Him for that good conscience. And I can know that I'm forgiven because I read His Word and obey it. Therefore, I get that good conscience. We maintain that good conscience through love. Notice 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love out of a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere, unfeigned faith. Okay. So our main purpose in life is, of course, to spread the love of God. And we can only do that if uh, we have a very thorough, sincere faith and we keep our motives and our hearts pure and then along with that, that develops a good conscience. And then a good conscience is also maintained, if you look over to 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, it's maintained by a tender heart. Because Paul warns about those who were believing doctrines of demons and all kinds of lives of men because their conscience had been seared as with a hot iron. Hardened. Hardened. The way you maintain a good conscience is to stay away from prejudice, staying away from the thoughts of men, staying away from hardness, staying away from bitterness, and simply open up uh, your heart uh, to the Word of God. We maintain a good conscience, if you look at 1 Timothy 1, 18-19, by being willing to stand up for the truth. Paul tells Timothy to war a good warfare, 1 Timothy 1.18, and to keep holding on to your faith with a good conscience. So Timothy, if he refused to engage in the war, then his conscience would be uh, disturbed. And then finally, we maintain a good conscience by having a consistent life. What we read and what we profess to believe must be carried out in our lives. Titus 1, verses 15 and 16 says, Some profess that they know God, but by their works they defile Him. They they deny Him. That's, that's, That's actually what it says. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him, and their consciences have become defiled. Defiled. And so it's a wonderful thing to study the conscience. It leads us to God and belief in Him, but it also helps us to stay close to Him and maintain our walk with Him. If we can assist you with any spiritual need, please make that known right now as we stand together and as we sing, Brother Paul. There's a fountain.